0: is supported by you and the following underwriters the catskill revitalization corporation home of the delaware and ulster railroad based in Arkville, and the catskill scenic trail for hiking and biking along the old rail bed from roxbury to bloomville the delaware and ulster railroad tourism train is scheduled to return this summer for rides in an open car or coach with food and beverage aboard the vintage silver rose dining car Dates and details at the Delaware and Ulster Railroad Facebook page or at DURR.org. dot org. moose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian with farm-to-table cuisine Thursday through Monday. Indoor dining from 4 to 9 p.m. Takeout till 10. peek dot com or 845-254-6500, 845-254-6500. The Slider Agency. On Main Street in Margaretville, a neighborhood independent insurance agency educating consumers about safe driving and about coverage options. Open Monday through Friday, 830 till 5. More information at 845-586-2641 or slideragency.com. This is Dan O'Connell, host of Monday Morning Music on WIOX Roxbury.
1: As a WIOX spokesperson, I also manage underwriting for the station, And I'm here to let you know that underwriting on WIOX is a great way to support the station and inform the community about your business or service. If you'd like to become an underwriter, contact me for details at 607-326-3900 or WIOX at WIOXradio.org.
2: You are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. And also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going?
1: Not bad, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing all right. What have you been up to? I spent this last weekend, since I didn't tap any trees this year, getting a little chance to tour the local sugar houses. And I visited two different maple sugaring operations in Delaware County this last weekend. Sweet. Literally.
2: Yeah. It was nice. That's, That's a good thing. It's been a maple sugaring kind of weather since January. For the most part, this year, it's it's just all it is, 40s every day or upper 30s and freezing at night.
1: Yep, yep. And these guys were doing good. They've been happy with the sugar
2: content and the flow. So we'll see how their season ends up. All right. Um, So we got a full show tonight. We're going to get right into it. And tonight's topic is how is fire ecology different than classical ecology with the USDA Forest Service's Bryce Hanbury. Bryce is a research ecologist with the Maintaining Resilient Dryland Ecosystems Program of the Rocky Mountain Research Station. I believe is in Colorado. I'll ask her when I get her on. Uh, Current research involves historical ecosystems of open forests maintained by fire, tree biomass simulations under climate change, and juniper tree encroachment in grasslands and shrublands. Analysis and management of disturbance effects, including fire and fire exclusion, climate change, and land use on terrestrial ecosystems, natural resources, and wildlife at multiple scales, with particular focus on open oak and pine ecosystems. And let me see if I can get Bryce. Bryce, can you hear me?
3: Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
2: I can. Um, Where are you calling from?
3: I am actually in Rapid City, South Dakota.
2: Oh man, I don't know anything. Sorry about that. <laughs> South Dakota, um, damn. The
3: station headquarters is in Fort Collins, Colorado. So you're you're right.
2: Okay, I went to school in Boulder back in two thousand. I just remember there being a Rocky Mountain Research Center, but uh, I don't didn't remember exactly where it was. But so Bryce, I I originally heard your talk for another organization. Um, what was that organization again? They, it was a good talk.
3: Yeah, so um, there is um, the Joint Fire Sciences Program, and there are uh, fire uh, science exchange programs uh, located throughout the United States, um, and that was the Oak Woodlands uh, Fire Exchanger. You know, sometimes it's called the Consortium.
2: Yeah, they, they had other talks on there as well, so I encourage people to uh, visit their site. But, um, so classical ecology, we'll just get right into it. How would you define, I mean, tonight's topic is deciphering fire ecology from classical ecology. So first let's define the terms. What is classical ecology?
3: Um, well, you know, this could mean a lot of things, but it did develop, um, you know, during the 1800s and this is what we learn in school. So, you know, whether you just have, take uh, like a undergraduate class and you get a little bit of ecology or you... You do the full, you know, ecology degree. That's what you learn is classical ecology. You know, it's developed somewhat, but it really hasn't incorporated fire ecology into it. Hmm.
2: Why do you think it doesn't?
3: I know that when <laughs> I know <laughs> that when I went to school, I really didn't learn anything about fire ecology. Um, and if I did learn just a teeny bit, it never, never was incorporated. Um, and I think it's just. It, classical ecology and, and modern ecology really has put a really strong division between, um, you know, fire and ecology, forests, and non-forest ecosystems of grasslands, savannas, of women. So the basis has always been really centered on forests.
2: I didn't learn about fire either in forestry school. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> where did you go to school? Oh,
3: that's ter- yeah, that's terrible considering... You said you went to Boulder, right, in the middle of a place that's known for fire.
2: Well, I transferred to the College of Environmental Science and Forestry in New York State, but they didn't talk about fire, really. Um, No? No, no.
3: And and, and that's pretty common. Like, I grew up in the eastern U.S., and fire, like, that didn't even occur to me as an option. Like, that didn't seem like something that happened. So why would we talk about fire?
2: Huh. Yeah, it's amazing. So, I, I don't know. I mean... Open forest structure, how, how would you define that? I mean, is this just a field? How would you define open forest structure?
3: Okay, so when you uh, – if you've ever had the chance to walk in an open forest of woodlands, you'll know it because literally you can see through them and walk through them. It's not uh, like a uh, bushwhacking experience. It's actually, you know, there are some trees but you can easily negotiate through them. So. You know, literally it's very obvious that you're in an open forest of woodlands or savannas. It's it's like grasslands, but there are some trees. But there's not a midstory that's cluttering up those forests. Um, and there are some areas in the northeast that are still open oak or pine forests.
1: Yeah, I took a trip out west this last winter, or this last summer rather. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I could almost drive a pickup <laughs> truck, no matter where you wanted to go, and you can still consider yourself within
2: the trees, right?
3: Yeah.
2: Would this be something like um, oak savannas? That you know that it, I guess Wisconsin was kind of known for this. So uh,
3: historically, most of the eastern United States was. Um, either oak or pine savannas and woodlands, and what we have right now are just remnants. And so, yes, the oak um, everywhere up to about um, the southern part of the northernmost state. So, southern Wisconsin um, has, you know, some remnants still so, of uh, uh, what used to be wide extents uh, dominated by open forests of either oak or pine. So, like the southeastern had, um, the southeastern region had longleaf pine woodlands. And also shortly pine oak woodlands, and then most of the central eastern U.S. had open oak uh, woodlands. Um, and then there are some places, and and this would include like to you know through Massachusetts even. Um, and then there are also some places with pitch pine woodlands, uh, sometimes called barrens.
2: So you have to be bumping up against uh, your comrades there who disagree. I mean, it, I happen to. Probably agree with you to be honest, but there's got to be other people. Do do people dispute this? What do you think?
3: Um, and whether or not they dispute it, there's a lot of evidence of reconstructions of what used to be there, which was predominantly oak. Um, the people who are disputing it dispute whether. I think I think they're disputing the structure, maybe saying that it's closed forest. Um, but we have lots of. Um, Fire, like, uh, Native people have burned forever. <laughs> uh, and there's no reason why um, they would burn in, you know, Pennsylvania and not burn in Massachusetts. Right. Um, so it, it would be a very, a, in, in fact, we think that, you know, Long Island was grasslands because it was burned. <laughs> so there's there's lots of just um, knowledge just about humans that would indicate that there's no exception in New England or the Northeast about whether or not it burned.
2: Yeah, I remember reading some books. Um, I think um, I, William, William Cronin talks about it, but, you know, some parts from the coast and the settlers came, they said there was miles and miles of just blueberry meadows with absence of trees.
3: Yeah, there there are lots of historical documents that, that um, you know, where Europeans, you know, recorded, oh, burnt, it was burnt here and burnt here. Uh, and you know that's, you know that's one of the, the accounts that we have is that burning happens widespread throughout um, the United States. So it, again, it would be unusual if there was some little um, pocket of southern the southern northeast where it didn't burn, especially because we have um, a huge dominance by oaks there. About 50% of all trees were oaks. Um, and, and that doesn't happen unless there's something to favor those oak species, and they're pretty fire tolerant compared to other species. Now, it is true that there is a um, a switchover. Uh, the cat Catskills, in particular, was probably probably did not burn very frequently, so it's probably mostly closed forest. And and the historical records, tree records, show that it's mostly the you know sugar maple, uh, hemlock, beech forest, and and that was close over growth forest that not, um, not, did not get exposed to surface fire very often.
2: Yeah, except for when you're in a bigger valley within the mountains, you start finding similar vegetation that you might find in in the Rondout Valley or the Hudson, Hudson Valley. We have some pockets of oak, right, John, on some of these ridges that are kind of mysterious.
1: Yeah, some of it's totally unexplainable, a pocket of, of chestnut oak where you wouldn't find another... Another chestnut oak for forty or fifty miles, maybe.
3: Yeah. So, in in places that burned a lot, there were still pockets of closed forest, right? And just and so in landscapes, you know, the northern part of the eastern U.S., the Catskills and north, um, there are mostly it didn't burn a lot, but there are definitely embedded pockets and in different places where it burns. So, uh, you know, bigger areas would be probably like along the Hudson Valley River, uh, the Hudson River Valley, and the St. Lawrence and the Erie Canal. But um, within, say, mountains where you, you might find pitch pine or oak, it's usually those drier, rocky areas where vegetation is is pretty limited. Um, tree vegetation is pretty limited. And, and it's pretty dry, so it actually burns more easily than the surrounding area that's pretty closed and, and pretty humid.
2: So what's the benefits, Bryce, of, of an open forest? Why were we human beings wanting to create that condition?
3: Um, so this is uh, both a way to travel easily. Um, you know, if, if you don't have <laughs> cars, if you don't have um, roads, then this is a really... way to have travel ways and the other thing is just a good food source if you have instead of trees trees don't grow too much food but if you have lots of herbaceous vegetation the blueberries um, the deer forage you know the seeds and so forth then um, you can harvest fruit you can grow uh, that you can um, those herbaceous plants you know nurture pollinators nurture insects and they feed birds and they feed, um, you know, different uh, mammals of all sorts. So, so this is the way to tend your wildlife and also tend your uh, travel ways at the same time.
2: Well, I mean, the, the herbaceous layers—it's got to be really important. I mean, we don't really have much herbaceous layer. Uh, we have so much shade and, and deer browse, which I guess we'll talk about later. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. What do you think, John?
1: So, I mean, what kind of fires in the northeast are we talking to create something that drastically different, and how often?
3: Um, So, you know, most of the northeast did not burn very often. It was uh, old growth closed forest, and, um, you know, when fires came through, oftentimes they were um, more severe fires, but but the, the disturbance intervals for, like, thousands of years. So really, it's the, the southern, northeast, <laughs> and then again, some areas like along the Hudson River Valley and places like that. And in order to have those open forests, um, it depends on, um, I mean, really, frequency is totally rel- uh, related to the site quality. So in order to keep trees controlled, you just need to burn while the trees are small diameter, while they're vulnerable at, at small diameters. And that can be... You know, if you have a really good growing <laughs> site, like in the in, in longleaf pines in the southeast, this means two to five years. But if you're in a place of colds so with a really short growing season um, and so forth, it's more on the, the range of like 35 years. <laughs> so, And it could probably be even longer than that if you had some other understory disturbances. But it's all relative to the site quality, how fast those young trees become um, big enough that they can survive fires and so again that that might be thirty five years or, or even a little bit more
2: so okay how would you define a closed forest then you know yeah <laughs> how would you define that?
3: so in this case and and we've already kind of talked about this but but the, the trees occur throughout the vertical profile so you really can't see through these forests and you don't really want to walk through them unless there's a an established trail or It can be very challenging to walk through, (laughs) them. there's a lot of clutter. Um, So literally, they're closed, Um, and um, that's, I think, the typical structure of most forests in the eastern United States.
2: And you're saying this closed forest is, is, in some areas, a relatively recent phenomenon, like what, in the last 100, 200, 300 years?
3: Uh, it, and this is, this kind of depends on when Euro-American settlement came through, but most of the United States would have switched to, um, to closed forests when it became about 25% agriculture, and that happened um, somewhere in the late 1800s for most of it. It would have been earlier, you know, with earlier settlement in the Northeast. So, you know, could have been as early as actually we have, you know, historical accounts of even as early as 1635, these settlers were complaining because the trees were growing so fast without uh, indigenous people burning anymore. And so they were complaining that their trails were getting, um, were, you know, springing up in trees, and that was not so easy to, to walk through. So actually different ordinances about where um, people had to contribute their time clearing <laughs> clearing trails. But, you know, as early as 1635 in some localized spots, most of the country started tipping over more like, you know, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen
2: hundreds. Yeah, and that could have a lot of ramifications on uh, succession and species composition, I would think, right? I mean, that's a long time ago now. That that can totally you know, what was what once a oak, hickory, chestnut forest can be could be maple now,
3: you know? Yeah. So Historically, their succession didn't really occur. Um, succession is something that happens when your overstory gets removed all the time. Like, literally, you rem- the overstory is removed, and it goes through some structural and compositional stages. Historically, though, there wasn't a lot of overstory disturbance. There weren't, um, you know, uh, chainsaws and, and so forth. <laughs> so people didn't, humans didn't remove the trees very often except, you know, around villages and so forth. So the trees weren't really removed. And so there'd be, essentially these were old growth forests. The trees lived for hundreds of years and there was continuity in the overstory structure Um, and also in the composition. These, uh, the pollen surveys show that oak and pine were dominant 10,000 years ago and the historical tree surveys showed oak and pine were dominant during the land surveys of 1800. So the composition stayed the same the structure stayed the same of open forest we didn't the trees weren't removed didn't go through cycling um nowadays that um you know uh, at least um between 1880 and 1920 um when uh, the chainsaws and sawmills and so forth came through pretty much anything that could be harvested was harvested several times um so all of the overstory was removed and then there was fire exclusion surface fire exclusion so it it, it was since a, a level playing field and what came back at first were the oaks and the pines but eventually they were out competed by the hundreds of other tree species that are um, available in the eastern broadleaf forest so we have we're seeing a lot of species mixes now that didn't occur in the past we don't have the dominance by oaks and pines that we used to have and we see succession like all of us have seen it where the trees are removed for some sort of clearing purposes whether it's for the timber products or because you know someone you know cleared land for a house or something like that so we, we do see the process of you know young trees growing up and and becoming, you know, part of the vertical profile of these closed forests.
2: John, you want to say something? You look perplexed. Oh, no, I'm just following along. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I mean, so
1: up until the 1600s, you're saying Mm -hmm. it was common to have an open forest structure of oak and pine in the eastern United States.
3: And really, and I mean, depending on the location, the earliest change would have been, you know, the earliest we have a record of anyone noticing that changes have started with 1635, but most of the changes wouldn't have occurred until like the 1700s maybe, and, um, you know, really along the eastern seaboard, and then a settlement occurred, most of the United States shifted more in the, um, around the, around 1900.
2: Right, and, and it seems like, okay, I think some people might get confused, I think I know what you're saying, but... Um, it's, it's a, there's a canopy, but the smaller trees are constantly being removed by, by surface fires over and over again. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And the larger trees are just remaining.
3: Yeah. The overstory trees live for hundreds of years and there's periodic recruitment when, you know, we talk about fire regimes being anywhere from two years to 35 years. Well, say there's a gap of 35 years from random chance, whatever, it, you know, things happen and, and fire didn't hit there. That's a chance for a um, some of the younger trees to recruit into the overstory. But it didn't need to happen regularly. White oaks lived for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, anyway, yes, there was a continuous canopy with very periodic rare tree recruitment into the overstory.
2: Yeah, I've, I've seen it um, in, even in our area where there was a, a wild, uh, well, fire started by campers. And it got away, and it girdled the smaller trees, mainly maple. And the oaks survived it just fine. They're twenty to twenty-five inch diameter oaks, and they're they're fine. They couldn't get girdled with that thick bark.
3: Yeah, usually that is the case. Once they develop the thick bark, there is something about um, trees needing that exposure to fire, and also the with the litter. Um, and the litter bed and the roots in there having that exposure to fire. Sometimes if trees, even if they're fire tolerant, have never been exposed to fire and suddenly that happens to them, even if they're, you know, what seem like pretty big trees, sometimes they do die because they have a lot. The, that area has never really, again, hasn't been exposed to fire. And, like, the root systems are too shallow and, you know, a, a lot of strange things can happen if they, have never been
2: exposed to fire throughout their development. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to from the forest tonight's topic is how is fire ecology different than classical ecology with USDA Forest Services Bryce Hanbury um, I mean fire why why do you think it has been taken away? it's, it's really not in the toolbox metaphorical toolbox in the northeast as, as much as it could be if it, it's really absent in new york state why do you think it's culturally uh not talked about
3: i mean that is it related to the the beginning of this um what we first talked about and that you know europeans didn't necessarily think that fire not all but they also did not have uh fire exposure in their histories and did not you know, spot fire was damaging and so did not bring that as a toolbox for, you know, when they, you know, settled throughout the world. So it did not It did not come as a tool and it has not developed really uh, well as a tool. Um, I, I guess I should start with talking about there's a difference between fire suppression and fire exclusion. And fire suppression is really the active effort to uh, extinguish fires like the firefighters and equipment. Um, But fire exclusion is what happens when um, through the land cover and the cultural changes that reduce fire occurrence because fire can't spread. So actually, initially, the settlers, Euro-American settlers, actually did take up indigenous burning and used it um, culturally. But um, as human densities increased, And and people rightfully became concerned about, um, you know, human lives and infrastructure. Um, The cultural shift happened to fire exclusion. So instead of people deliberately igniting, they deliberately extinguish fires. So there was that shift from, well, we're going to use fire as a tool, you know, because we don't have equipment, we don't have a lot of labor, let's use what the people that are here are using. And then after a while it's like, well, this is kind of dangerous and we have chainsaws and so forth, so we don't need um, we don't need fire anymore. So there was a cultural shift to um, involved in fire exclusion. And the other part was the land use change where if you don't have that herbaceous vegetation, it's really hard for a surface fire to spread. I mean, just by definition, if you don't <laughs> if you don't have those fuels, short fuels, you're not gonna have surface fires. So again when when there's a lot of um, herbaceous plant crops to different land uses or to forest, um, for instance, to the agriculture, then essentially that, that excluded fire just completely passively. Like if, <laughs> if we did not do anything, any active fire suppression, it's still pretty hard to get a fire in the eastern United States because there are so many fire like There are roads, there agricultural fields, there's everything to keep a fire from spreading in place.
2: So, yeah, yeah.
3: So, okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I
2: also, it's like, when you know, it's, it's hard for people to grasp because when you talk, start talking about forests, I find when we, John and I, taught the Catskill Forest Association dealing with members and stuff, I think some people are like, yeah, but haven't the trees always been, like, on their own? And what you're saying is, no, I, actually, a lot of the forests, even in the northeast, some, some, especially near the Hudson River, were a product of, of human management. And I, th- I think that's hard for for a lot of people to grasp.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, indigenous people were using their resources just as we try to use our resources. They weren't. They didn't have the same interest in forest products that we did. They were interested in, you know, again, in being able to travel through areas and be able to gather, you know, um, different um, herbaceous resources and wildlife. Um, so yes they manage the landscape and again if you have the right fuel conditions then a fires that are set um, will spread quite a quite a large distance it, it, it's kind of impossible to imagine it now because you could uh, you know they'll even try to set prescribed burns in some locations and it just they just won't spread the ignition because the fuel conditions are so poor now
2: right so this is something you might know more than you definitely know more than us in South Dakota, but what about grasslands? I mean, I, I've heard you said you mentioned Long Island already. I've heard that western New York was potentially grasslands at one time. So what's the deal with that? Grasslands and fire and lack thereof.
3: Yeah, so a lot of the flat stretches of New York that happen in western New York are ideal for grasslands. And and I did some models of where where good places for grasslands would be and, and they popped up right away but different so Plains um, came up at, as ideal places for grasslands. So I don't know if we have historical counts or know that for sure. You might, because you're from New York, you might have, that might have been something that you learned along the way or read somewhere that those, those you know, that there seems to be a lot of history that those were, were grasslands initially. You know, a lot of the grasslands have been converted to agriculture, so it's hard to tell right. what used to be there. Um, but, yes. Yeah, grasslands then would have more frequent fires than than savannas. Savannas would have more frequent fire than, than woodlands. Um, so where fire burns more frequently than, than trees can establish, that's where grasslands would be. And it doesn't take long if the fires don't come, you know, every 20, 30 years for the trees to, you know, invade into grasslands even out west um even like we have the trees of eastern grasslands that are saying look <laughs> you know Kentucky was a place that used to have a lot of grasslands um, and people were like oh look at all the trees coming in so we they actually showed that in 20 years a lot of those grasslands turned over to forest the first the first trees that came in were oak trees because that's what there was the most of and they were probably pretty open at first, and then after, you know, another 20 years, they are probably pretty dense forest.
2: I see you're studying juniper. What about juniper? Did that come in pretty good after that?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so eastern red cedar is something that has uh, historically was was limited to kind of drought-tolerant. It's not fire-tolerant. So it was um, restricted to rocky outcrops, and it has increased quite a bit in the eastern United States. Oh, yeah. Um, But where it's mostly coming in, it's been the Great Plains invader. So um, Texas, Oklahoma, places like that have, you know, just seen their grasslands in about 30 years turn into eastern red cedar. And that, you know, that's a really good example of the ecosystem services being lost to closed forests because people who depend on (laughs) rangelands um, or grasslands, they're no longer grasslands. When they're eastern red cedar forests, and there's not much that can fit. And I don't know if you've ever been in eastern red cedar. I lived in Missouri for a long time, and um, there's just there's nothing under there. It's just dense, really dense eastern red cedar.
2: Yep. Yeah. No. Where, where I grew up in the Walk Hill Valleys, a lot of red cedar coming in those old abandoned fields. But what about looking at um, historical wildlife? You know, maybe in Kentucky or Western New York, whether they had elk or buffalo might indicate. A grassland, I would think. I don't know. What do you think, John? You're yeah. Wildlife so,
3: <laughs> Yeah, if you had, um, you know, Buffalo, New York, it was probably named for the bison that were there. there you know, we don't have really good histories of bison in that um, it's not clear if they were always in the eastern United States. Or if they, some people think they just came in when um, after your American peddlers released diseases, <laughs> and suddenly they, they, bison didn't have the hunting pressure from Native Americans. So there's some thought that they've always been in the eastern, they always were in the eastern United States, not at the same densities as the Great Plains, but that they're always there. Some thought is that they just, you know, maybe there was a little bit of bison there and that they increased following about, you know, when the Native American populations crashed about 1,600 or so. So it's not really clear what kind of populations we're talking about for bison, but we have lots of names that are, you know, they definitely were there um, when your American settlers were settling, and we have lots of, you know, different things like Salt Lake, Bison, Buffalo, you know, all sorts of names where bison were historically in the eastern United States. We have, you know, People have recorded bison trails and, and, and so forth. So they were through, they did not go up to the north um, to New England as much. I don't think there are any records from there, but they were throughout most of the eastern U- U.S. Yeah. Um, until they were extra extirpated during the 1800s.
2: Right, yeah. I never heard it in New England, but just reading various books, yeah, western New York would seem more conducive to that. Plus, they get a little less rain than we do seems once you get to western new york they get a little below 40 right John? i don't know like 30 something inches of rain which to us is like the desert (laughs) right
3: yeah well we have bison here in south dakota of course and we get like 13 inches of rain a year so um oh my god you know they (laughs) yeah they do bison do quite quite well um with low precipitation as long as there are um you know, herbaceous growth, you're not going to have high densities but bison, you know, they're migrating, too, so they don't stay in one place. Uh, historically, they were migrating. Now they're highly managed herds, but um, they would have migrated around following, um, you know, say, precipitation that has that, uh, created quite a bit of regrowth, or else after fires, uh, herbaceous growth comes in really well. So there's a, a link between herbivory and fires.
2: So um, we're going to take a break, but next I want to ask Bryce about herbivory and climate change and all that. But um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is How is Fire Ecology Different Than Classical Ecology? With USDA Forest Service's Bryce Hanbury.
4: And we'll both live a lot longer if you.
2: You're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. And tonight's topic is How is fire ecology different than classical ecology with USDA Forest Services, Bryce Hanbury? So, what about herbivory and these closed forests, you know, the, the, the forest we see today? How is that impacting or not impacting that condition?
3: Okay, so first of all, there have been Plants have been dealing with herbivores for millions and millions of years, so they're pretty uh, tolerant of herbivores. And before human arrival, there were like, I mean, you know, there were dinosaurs and so forth, but before immediately preceding human arrival, there were about 30 mammalian large herbivores in the eastern United States, including three elephant like species um, in, in that would be like a mammoth and a mastodon and, and elephants are well known to be able to kind of control uh forest structure and, and reduce tree density so most of those species went extinct so we um, when Euro american settlers arrived there were just the deer <laughs> the elk uh bison which we talked about um and so probably with that kind of you know, deer weigh a lot less than the elephants, so probably with a the, the couple species and a real downsizing of, you know, number of species, how big the species, how big these herbivores were, and things like that. Probably the pressure on herbivores has, uh, of herbivores on plants has probably decreased. There just aren't as many, <laughs> there aren't as many uh, herbivores eating plants in the eastern United States, probably. Um, herbivores provide an understory disturbance like fire. They can um, The browsers eat the, the deer and the elk eat the small diameter trees. So they're, they, they're consumers of small diameter trees, like fire is a consumer of those small diameter trees. So deer densities and, and um, deer and fire act a lot alike as disturbances. We don't have fire anymore. So the one thing that could or is controlling church tree densities are deer, <laughs> except, again, if you look at forests, most of them are closed. You can't see through them. There are a lot of small-diameter trees through them. So apparently, I think just by looking, <laughs> um, it's pretty clear that the deer aren't doing the job of controlling those tree densities. If they weren't there, it might be a must I don't know. Could it be worse? I'm not sure. So the closed forests are doing quite well, despite herbivory, herbivory from um, the deer density. What about when? Text,
1: oh, sorry, I was going to say, what about ahead. when a, a forester complains about failed regeneration after a, like an overstory cut?
3: So I mean, if that is happening, I you know, from my perspective, not as a forester but as an ecologist, that actually is a, it's a good thing because it's an opportunity not to grow more trees, but an opportunity to grow more basic plants. Um, I love it. That's the one... <laughs> Ryan's laughing. <laughs> yeah, obviously, if you're interested in forest products, it's not good. Right, right. <laughs> but if you're interested in the way that things were historically, it's actually working the way it should be. That the deer have actually controlled tree regeneration so that there's a balance between trees and herbaceous plants.
1: So you're saying if we don't have trees regenerating our soils aren't going to just collapse into the into the valleys and hillsides and and you know armageddon here Jeez.
3: well if if you're if there's no vegetation on there you know absolutely nothing then then erosion definitely will occur because you need the roots to keep the, the dirt in place um if, so if nothing's coming back that is a problem and and it will require restoration if you're seeing those you know, non-native species come in, that's also a problem, right? Um, but if you're seeing native herbaceous plants coming in, that is actually restoration and, and, and or providing some sort of balance with tree densities um, that we don't have right now. And again, it depends on the location. If it's in the castles, um in a lot of places, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect too many openings um, but, again, deer and herbivores have been uh, <laughs> uh, working on tree densities for a long time. So it's something that happens whether there are a few deer or a lot of deer, there's a, lo- a range of browsing severity. So it's a, it's a normal thing to have happen. Um, it's a natural thing to have happen.
2: Bryce, it sounds when- yeah. Oh, sorry, I- go ahead.
3: I was just going to say, even when deer were recovering from near extirpation, um, although Leopold uh, recorded places where deer were gathering in high densities and causing um, problem areas, and yet there are hardly any deer um, relative to historical populations and current populations at that time. Is there a natural disturbance that they and they remove, they reduce tree density?
2: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like forests have have been around herbivores for a long time. But it sounds like, according to you, there have also been around human beings burning them for a long time. So how has this impacted, I guess negatively would be new to a lot of people, forest resiliency, right? I mean, having these really dense forests, I mean, does it make them susceptible to diseases and stuff? I mean, uh, what what does that mean?
3: (laughs) Yeah, so I'm just going to point out that Um, herbaceous plants don't have severe forest fires by definition. They don't have, um, you know, any kind of beetle outbreaks that kill all the trees because they're herbaceous plants. You know, they don't have drought problems. So essentially, the more trees that you have, the more likely you are to have forest fires because when you have a lot of trees and a lot of um, where the canopies are touching and when there's a ladder fuels of small Diameter trees going all the way up the vertical profile. That is the way the fire can spread up into the canopy, and then, you know, horizontally across the canopy. Um, so you can have severe fires if you don't. If your canopy is not touching, if you don't have, uh, um, that, you know, small diameter trees to carry fire to the to the canopies, you can't have. It's very difficult to have more than just a torching of a few trees. Very difficult to have a severe forest fire if you don't have forest, much of a forest. <laughs> um, just herbaceous plants don't have forest fires. It's hard for um, there to be, you know, insect outbreaks that cause, you know, massive die-offs if you don't have high density forest. You and they just, you know, there's a certain level of basal area that attracts insect outbreaks. Um, and it doesn't happen at low density forests. Um, also, the, if you have a lot of trees competing in a small area, they don't have a lot of resources and they're under stress. And so they have less vigor for resisting diseases. You know, they're more susceptible to diseases and mortality when they, you know, they can't develop those good root systems where they don't have enough light. You just, you know, you just put too many trees in a small growing space. They just, they're kind of sickly. <laughs> they're kind of frail compared to your tree, you know, have a few trees They have a lot of um, light, a lot of, um, you know, space for their roots and so forth, a lot of growing space around them. So they, you know, if you (laughs) pack too many trees in a small space, it actually creates a lot of problems in terms of also, um, in terms of um, they use a lot of water and they're not tolerant to drought. So if you have been getting wetter in the the eastern United States, but if there are uh, droughts or flash droughts, these really packed um, high-density stands are going to be pretty susceptible to drought die-off. They also, you know, these are, most of the trees are, you know, really good at above-ground growth, but they're not good at tolerating stress. They don't have a lot, again, don't have a lot of um, resources on the root system They can't – they don't do as well at just growing slowly and and toughing out situations. It it seems –
2: yeah. It it seems like (laughs) in the last 20, 30, 40 years, foresters are complaining, oh, we just have a new tree disease all the time. We didn't have these problems before. And, you know, then some people say, well, it's because of of climate change. What what do you think? I mean, is it – is it both – is it climate change? Is it the lack of, is it fire suppression or, or the lack of fires? Is it too, is a closed canopy forest too dense? I mean, what do you, what do you think?
3: Well, again, regardless of what the climate is, if it's changed or not, um, again, if you have a lot of fast-growing trees growing in dense stands, they are going to be more susceptible to disease, you know, again, regardless of more rain or more heat, they're just, it's just, um, it's just going to happen. Um, and then um, as for climate change, um, in general, the eastern United States has not warmed very much. Um, it's actually called a warming hole. Um, the place where it has warmed may be up to one degree Fahrenheit over the past. So climate change is, is a sustained trend that lasts about, at least about 30 years. So if something happens, you know, otherwise it's weather, <laughs> more weather. Um, but if there's a, a trend that has happened over a 30-year period it's different than the previous time it's climate change, it could be 20 years, but it has to be really a sustained trend. Um, in general, the, um, so the northeast has warmed maybe in locations up to a, a degree Fahrenheit over the past 30 years compared to the previous 80 years of instrumental records. We only have instrumental records really from about 1900 on. So warmed uh, up to one degree, mostly less, it could be a little bit more, it's spatially variable. Um, and um, But that, that one degree Fahrenheit is not out of the range of historical variation. <laughs> it's not, we're not on, uh, that's not really a trajectory that these um, the eastern united states hasn't seen in the past um like eight thousand years it's, it's within the range of historical variation the forests are not in the range of historical variation um precipitation also has an incre- has an increasing trend particularly in the northeast um, has increased and again that's within the historical range of variation so the climate is not outside of uh, of what half but forests of the past has experienced, but it is out of the range of what forests of the present have experienced. <laughs> if you don't have old-growth sugar maple, hemlock, and beech; if you don't have old-growth oak and pine; if you don't have grasslands, then your closed um, forests have never experienced any heat changes, really, because they've only come—they've only come together, assembled in the past, you know, since about 1900 or so. So it, it might feel warm to them. It might feel Wet to them, I don't know. Um, but regardless of that, they are under a lot of stress because they're, you know, competing really hard for space, for resources, and light, and and that tends to re- reduce the bigger and it, it tend, you know, there's a certain spatial area threshold where diseases and um, and insects can occur.
2: That all makes sense to me, um, totally. Sure. I mean if, yeah if there's if there's density yeah I mean trees have been around a long time I just don't feel like the climate has changed in variation that much yet to be the big stressor but the density this is and that's what your talk kind of really enlightened to me is this is a new thing and this is definitely having some ramifications negatively I don't know
3: yeah the the old growth closed forest that happened in the cat Coast historically they weren't they weren't as dense because they actually they were old growth so they experienced mm-hmm you know, gap dynamics and so forth, there were openings that naturally happened, you know, tree fall, things like that that you've probably learned about. These closed forests that are still successional, they haven't had a lot of uh, self-thinning occur the way old-growth forests have. They haven't experienced that self-thinning where the tree numbers have died down and they're they're in stages of, like, new gaps and regeneration. And and so they're still in that really competitive, very stressful self-thinning
2: yeah so we're running out of time believe it or not only got about three four minutes left um and if you're just tuning in you're missing a good show it's how is fire ecology different than classical ecology with usda forest services bryce hanbury bryce what's the difference between restoration and reforestation yeah
3: so um restoration would actually be to restore the continuum of ecosystems you know, their diverse composition structure and function that occurred historically, it, it offers a more permanent solution to provide a range of ecosystem services like resistance to climate change than just forestation. So if we could get grasslands and open forests um, where, you know, some representation of that in some of the places that they used to be, they will support wildlife. They will support um greater carbon storage because they actually hold that carbon, they actually store it. Um, and they store it below ground as well, rather than, you know, these successional closed forests that we act, I think are going to go through cycles of boom and bust. They're going to grow really hard, and then they're going to die really hard um, yeah. compared to some other forests. Um, and so we have these million tree initiatives, and this is the mm-hmm. classical ecology view that it's better, to have forests. If you don't have forests, then ecosystems are degraded. So this idea of planting more forests, more trees, (laughs) Um, but it's going to create those conditions that do not position us well for climate change. They're going to make forests and trees vulnerable to insect outbreaks, drought, forest fires, heat, Um, and they do not support biodiversity well. If you want to your birds and your pollinators we're having major pollinator decline um, and you know if you don't have flowers it's hard to have pollinators to support those um, also forestations um, will intensify water shortages uh, you might not feel like that's a problem <laughs> but if under climate change there may be your, if severe drought years mixed in with really you know heavy rainfall years and so there may be years where those water shortages come into play, or you'll hear the, you know, Georgia fighting with Florida over water or something like that. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Forest safety will intensify those water wars that we're not used to hearing about in, in the eastern United States.
2: So, we got about a minute and a half left. Oh, I know you have 15 points that differentiate. Fire Ecology from Classical Ecology, which I really love. Um, Is there any that you would like, noteworthy ones you'd like to say before we say goodbye?
3: (laughs) Um, I just, I think we can, I can end with one of these last ones that that you had, uh, we talked about where it's important to consider that trees are a hazard at high basal uh, basal areas, um, and that tree planting Mm -hmm. should be carefully considered.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it's just it's getting people to look at maybe the ecology of things instead of the trees themselves being necessarily, you know. I guess quality over quantity. Maybe I don't know. Is that a better way to say it? Maybe I don't know. I, trees and I
3: think that is a good idea to think about it because it, it's not really even going to do foresters who want forest products to do do them any good if they grow their trees near harvest and then the trees die <laughs> before right. that can happen. If your production is very uneven, it's, that's not as good as something you can count on as, you know, sustained, um, you know, sustained harvest.
2: Well, interesting stuff. And, uh, Bryce, thank you for coming on tonight and taking the time.
3: Well, thank you for inviting me.
2: Yeah, we really appreciate it. And uh, this is a good one. And um, have a good night.
3: You too. Thank you.
2: All right. If you just missed the show, that was Bryce Hanbury, USDA Forest Service talking about how is fire ecology different than classical ecology. And, uh, yeah, that was a good one. Very interesting. And um, that's all the time we have on From the Forest. See you next week. All right. Good night, everyone. All right.
5: Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind, it blows. Seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low And the old man came home from the forest His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street A dozen faces stopped to stare But no one stopped to speak For his castle was a hallway And the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in From the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase The old man made his way His ragged coat caught he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool In the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear Upon his mantle shining the face of one so dear Forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom In the forest She touched his grizzled fingers And she called him by his name And then he heard the joyful sound Of children at their games In an old house on a hillside In some forgotten town where the has come